Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hello and welcome to our Thirsty Podcast. My name is Jeremy Lightnin, and I'm here with my uh, fellow host, M. Zarling. No, not that M. Zarling. How are you today, Pastor Zarling? I am great. Which M. Zarling are you talking about? Well, it, I, I had a whole series. We had the uh, Pastor Zarling and the President Zarling, and, and every time I would say, oh, no, not that Zarling, because I'm done now. That was the last Zarling uh, intro I have for you. Okay, well, I was text someone, or someone texted me earlier this week, said, oh, I was with your cousin, and it was a certain Zarling. I said, I'm not related to that person. And he goes, I know, but I just want to tease you that every Zarling is related to you and none of the ones that anyone else knows in our church body are related to me. Well, speaking of people who are related, uh, today we have with us my dad, uh, Pastor Emeritus Wayne Lightning. Uh, welcome, Dad. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Yeah, thanks for being on, Wayne, because as I was talking to Jeremy about who we should get on the podcast, you know, I don't know a lot of people in the wells. I, Jeremy is related to more people than I know in the wells. So, so we have to get on his brother, get on his father, and then we'll probably go to cousins and second cousins, aunts, uncles, and so forth. And that's largely through my relations to half the synod are pretty much all through my mom's side or um, well, I guess that's not totally true, but uh, either my mom or my wife are what, what uh, give me all of those relatives. Because uh, dad, you were kind of uh, an outsider to the wells, right? Yeah, I, it was for, I was baptized in confirmed Missouri Synod. And then uh, during high school, our family came into the Wisconsin Synod and that's how I got in. So they so, Wayne, in, so that's good. Well, Wayne, how did you come in then as from the Missouri Synod in high school? Well, it's interesting. My mother was the Missouri, was raised in the Missouri Synod Church in Rochester, New York. My dad uh, married her and he was kind of a fallen away congregationalist from Connecticut. So he at first uh, did not become Lutheran, but when he went through instruction, became very zealously Lutheran, became a Sunday school teacher, and then an elder and president of congregation and out east. And But then he also was concerned about the teachings that were going on in our seminary about the historical critical method of interpretation, and uh, as a layman, tried to work from within Missouri, but then finally got to the point where he asked uh, the well, Oscar J. Nauman, the Wisconsin president, if they could start a mission in Connecticut or in New England, I should say, where uh, we could have a steady diet of what we knew was the truth. And so it was really my father that came into the Missouri Synod and we, we went with him. I was only probably a sophomore or junior in high school at the time. And, and uh, um, Michael, that is, that is the one that... Uh... Last week, we had uh, your members on who made such a long drive, and I was actually making reference to that, uh, talking about people who drive even more than an hour to uh, attend worship at a place. Isn't that uh, what your family yeah. did? At, f at first, it wasn't so far. Um, there was a mission that from a young pat by 
helped, led by a young pastor and the, that just graduated from the seminary by the name of um, uh, Carl Gergel. And he uh, and we had uh, we had been we had been uh, served by Pastor Baumler in New Jersey, who came up once a month to give a service in a yeah in a gym uh, for a while. But then Pastor Baumler was our first full time pastor. That was about twenty minutes away. Uh, when we lived in Vermont, yeah, we had to go down to Massachusetts to go to, to a Wells church. And that was, that was probably a couple hour drive. Yeah. Two, two and a half hour drive. Wow. Well, since we're telling stories of coming from the Missouri Synod into the Wisconsin Synod, and since Jeremy, you've brought up my family, at least my family surname, the last couple of episodes, uh, you guys don't, don't know this story is that my father, Harold Zarling. So he grew up Missouri Synod but only until he was like age five uh, that my mom's or my dad's mom died when he was like four. And then his dad died when he was around five and he had three older brothers and an older sister. And those older brothers were teenagers. They could pretty much at that time live on their own. Uh, but my dad and his older sister, they went and lived with their, each of their godparents. So they're spread up and split up. And so my dad went to live with his godfather and uh, then his wife, and they never adopted him, but they were foster parents. And as I explained last time, that my, my grandparents and they weren't able to have children, so they were blessed on my dad being there. But my dad, or my dad's foster father, Grandpa Miski, he was Wisconsin Synod. And because he was Wisconsin Synod, then my, my dad was Wisconsin Synod. My mom was Catholic, but they happened to be next door neighbors. And my dad was, he was running the farm as a teenager and he needed help. And so this young lady who was seven years younger came over and helped him on the farm and work for him. And while well, they fell in love. And then when my mom was 18, you know, she got married uh, to my dad who was seven years older and then, you know, they, and then she converted to Wells as well, because that was one of the conditions of my dad marrying her was he wouldn't marry her unless she converted. But now, otherwise, you know, who knows what we would be if that wouldn't have all happened. Well, that's it, God's grace is fascinating. Yeah, that all works out. And, and that's a great segue into what we're talking about today is all three scripture readings are all about God's grace. It's talking about seeking the lost. Uh, so Wayne, where have you served in your ministry in reaching the lost? Out of seminary, I was assigned to Arlington Avenue Lutheran Church in Toledo, Ohio. I was there about 10 years from 79 to 89. And then I was about three and a half years at a uh, uh, southwest suburb of Chicago, uh, which is Palos Heights. From there, I went to uh, Oklahoma City. I was there about 10 years and then 15 years from 2001 to 2016 here at uh, St. John's New Ulm. And I'm still a member at St. John's New Ulm, but no longer serving as a pastor here. So, Okay. Um, what was the uh, position that you had when we were in Toledo where you would uh, be going to the uh, different mission, uh, foreign mission fields? 
Oh, I was on the World Mission Board uh, during the you know those early years of my ministry, uh, late '80s and early '90s, and I was uh, on the executive committee at that time. It was called Executive Committee for Latin American Missions, which was Puerto Rico, Colombia, Brazil, um, and Mexico. I had a. a I was talking about that once because I was telling my students about how uh, we almost moved to Colombia because we actually have some students from Colombia and I was trying to make a connection with them about, oh, I, I almost lived in Colombia once and my uh, grandma sent us a, a workbook to learn Spanish and uh, unfortunately that never took. <laughs> <laughs> that was a difficult call. I, I mean, it started out that I felt guilty that I didn't feel any real strong tug. And then I talked to a missionary who told who a former missionary who said he's glad that I felt that way because he was the other way and uh, his wife wasn't completely on board at the time. And um, so when he said that, that made me relax more. And then all of a sudden I was having more the inclination that I should go. And it came very close. I almost did take that call. Mm -hmm. Well, in your ministry, as we're talking about with this gospel lesson on, it's commonly referred to as the prodigal son. You know, it's all about reaching the lost. You know, all of Luke chapter 15, all three parables of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son are all about then gaining the lost. And that's a lot of the work of elders inside the congregation. So, Wayne, in, in the congregations where you've served, uh, how have you trained your elders to go after the lost within your own congregation? Well, one of the one of the points that really weighed on my mind was that even to be an elder, you have to be in the Word. Um, I, I like Luther's three aptitudes for uh, for a good preacher, and that is number one to meditate on God's word, number two, to pray, uh, and number three brings one and two together, uh, brings them on board, and that's, he uses the word, instead of, he uses the word tentatio, which is affliction, that if you're going to be on God's side in any kind of contest with the world and the flesh on the other side, you're going to, you're going to feel the pinch, and it's going to be more than a pinch, it's going to, it's going to be a hammer, and that affliction drives you to your knees in prayer and drives you to God's word where your prayers are answered by his promises. So uh, I think number one is just like for pastors or any leader in the church, they have to have the word at the center. And, uh, and then that word has to be uh, active in the life because of the need for it to to protect each of us from the devil's wiles. I always think of that uh, balance between the three uh, affliction and prayer and uh, the, uh, being in the word as uh, I guess more recently in my, in my ministry, when I was in the parish, um, it was very easy for me to do the first two, spend a lot of time praying, spend a lot of time studying the word. Um, but uh, the affliction, it, it kind of has to, 
it, you have to get out and be around people in order for the affliction to kick in. Because uh, if you're just kind of a bookworm and uh, only always um, uh, spending time alone and, and reading and praying, uh, there's not a lot of uh, opportunity for the affliction. Uh, you really do need to be among the people. Uh, I, I thought of one pastor put it like this, you, you need to smell like sheep. If you're, if you're going to be a shepherd, you need to be around the sheep and smell like them. <laughs> Very true. Yeah, well, well, with that, uh, you know, Jeremy, that your partner over there, uh, Pastor Bauer, he's, he's been trying to keep me busy by sending me names of different Shoreland students. So they're not our own students, they're outreach students, and here we're kind of talking about reaching our own, but that whole idea, it, it's both exhilarating to me to be reaching out to these teens, but also terrifying. You know, reaching out to to teenagers, especially ones I don't know, but they, from talking to Tom, they've shown interest in the gospel, but the, and that's exhilarating. The scary part is he's referenced that their parents have no interest. Uh, you know, they sent the kids there to Shoreland, I'm sure, for a great education and a spiritual education in a safe place, but, you know, the parents have no interest. So, I'll talk to you guys how for me to reach out to these teenagers and to their parents, how do I do that? Do you have any advice for me? Do it by doing it. Okay. What do you mean by that? Uh, it's just, um, I'm actually, the, the students in class were asking me about doing chapel and, and I, I do it every other Thursday here, uh, give a chapel devotion, and they, and they ask if I still get nervous, and I say every time. Um, and that's, it, that can almost be, in some ways, on an interpersonal level with almost any encounter that I have. Like, obviously, my wife, my family, some of uh, you know, the people that I'm closest to, um, there's nothing awkward at all about approaching them and just starting a conversation. But even for people that I know, uh, a lot of times it, it can be nerve wracking just to start up a conversation and, and reach out. And uh, so that, I think it's, I don't know, dad, what's your, what's your word of advice? For just, no, I just agree. Doing uh, it? I, I, I was thinking of uh, some of the things that had happened over the years in my ministry. There are times when I'm able to uh, visit the homes of the uh, pe uh, of the people that I'm concerned about, and uh, sometimes it's uh, sometimes it was just saying my normal routine is to um, make visits on all the people that I have in my class uh, at home before we start the class and talk about expectations. I'd like to have one of the parents there at least, or um, I mean, that might sound a little rigid, but you can also have social situations where you get together. Uh, I know of a pastor who asked if he could do an instruction with students in their homes. And maybe you could say, uh, could we take turns going from house to house and just have it uh, in a more informal setting than having it in uh, always in a church or, or in a school and, uh, and that sort of thing. So there might be ways in which you can 
bring the parents on board by letting them overhear what's happening with with the students um, who are who are there. Um, but I I know one pastor down in Texas when I was in Oklahoma who actually asked if he could go through um, confirmation instruction with a student in his home. And they live quite a ways from the church so that it wasn't practical for the child to always be driven in for confirmation lessons. But the pastor said, I'll drive out. You know, I can meet at your place. And then what happened is the parents came, the parents gradually got on board. So things like that can sometimes help. Yeah. Um, Michael, did we go through Luke uh, last year? I forget. We did not. Okay. Um, well, then I, I won't be repeating myself because uh, of what I wanted to say about today's gospel, but also uh, what I wanted to say about what comes shortly after. I think it actually follows immediately after Luke 15. Uh, I'm not looking it up right now, but uh, it's the parable of the unjust steward uh, or the shrewd manager. Um, and I think that's actually the best advice I would give you is uh, what Jesus says at the end of that parable. I think it's the best evangelism uh, routine that anybody can follow. He says, make friends for yourselves using worldly wealth. But it's that, it's that verb, make friends for yourselves. That's, he doesn't say, make new members of your church. That may or may not happen, uh, but the thing is that you want to build a relationship. You want to show these people that you are interested in them as a person. You're not just trying to pad your uh, congregational numbers, uh, and, and that relationship may take a long time to build. And, uh, but see if you do it right up front and just say, well, I, um, you know, I want to see if you want to join my church. And there's a very good chance that then they're going to say, well, I'm not interested in joining your church. And then that's the end of it. Uh, but if you can make friends for yourself, if you can build a relationship by uh, building a friendship and making that the priority, um, that's, that's what uh, Jesus advises. Well, then that's probably good advice if that's what Jesus says. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, I thought, let me just put that nail in the coffin and uh, that'll end the discussion. <laughs> Yeah, well, and, and that's, I appreciate that. And that's what I'm planning on doing uh, with the students that Tom has given me is, uh, you know, we're blessed with having a very large number of Water of Life students at Shoreland. And so I'm just going to utilize those students because the majority of those students are very active and very outgoing. And as we're ramping up our own youth ministry is using those students to, like you said, Jeremy, well, Jesus said it first, make friends for yourselves and have, rather than me becoming their friend initially is, I already have, they already have friends who are from our church. They can share the gospel and invite them to the youth outings, like next month is bowling. And, you know, when we go paintballing and things like that, I plan on having apologetics Bible studies uh, for 30 minutes before any kind of outing that we do. And then having the students get together. And then, like you said, I think that's good advice. I don't, we don't need to make them members of the church right away. You know, that's our, our goal initially or eventually, but mainly I'm concerned for these students because I'm concerned for all of our students that in a few years, they're going to be going off to college or into the workforce and they're going to get lost 
uh, lost like the first, the second son in the gospel lesson. And it's so hard to get them back then. And, and if these, and that's for our students that are already connected to means of grace ministry. They already have the inheritance that the father gives them in the gospel lesson. But what about the other students that we're talking about here at Shoreland that are not connected to a means of grace ministry at the church? It's just so much easier for them to get lost in the world. So that's why I want to keep reaching out to these people. Uh, Jeremy, you want to get into the gospel lesson? Yeah, and and I, I did look this up now, and it is, in fact, the very next chapter, uh, 16, after this gospel that uh, Jesus tells the parable of the shrewd manager. So uh, that's kind of a good thought to have. Um, I will, uh, yeah, I'll read, uh, looks like verses 1 through 3 and then 11 to 32 of Luke 15. Yeah, so do you want to set that up of why it's broken up that way of the first three verses uh, and then you jump to the third parable? Yep, there are two other parables uh, that Jesus tells before this. One is of the lost sheep and the other is of the lost coin. And uh, Jesus is telling these parables in response to what we hear in the opening verses. There were people that were indignant that Jesus would uh, affiliate with tax collectors and uh, prostitutes. And, uh, and Jesus is showing this is why I'm associating with, tech, with uh, people of ill repute, because they, uh, they are the lost ones and I'm, I want to find them. So this is the parable of the lost son. Yeah. And then it, 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 he mentions here, or Luke mentions that the Pharisees were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And that was something I just learned recently, just that whole thing about eating with someone is uh you're you're very invested it's very close you and i still today we don't invite strangers off the street into our home you know these are people you know well that it's very intimate to have them uh, over for dinner and that's the that's the thing that really sets the religious leaders off that there's an intimacy a closeness between jesus and these tax collectors prostitutes the sinners that yeah, great thought. All right, if you want to go ahead and read it, then that would be great. Luke fifteen, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming to Jesus to hear him, but the Pharisees and the experts in the law were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus told them this parable: A certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, "Father, give me my share of the estate." So he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all that he had and traveled to a distant country. There he wasted his wealth with reckless living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that country, and he began to be in need. He went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He would have liked to fill his stomach with the carob pods, that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, and I am dying from hunger. I will get up, go to my father, and tell him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He got up and went to his father. While he was still far away, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, hugged his son, and kissed him. The son said to him, 
Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Then they began to celebrate. His older son was in the field. As he approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what was going on. The servant told him, your brother is here. Your father killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. The older brother was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. He answered his father, look, these many years I've been serving you and I never disobeyed your command, but you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours arrived after wasting your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. The father said to him, son, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. But it was fitting to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So Wayne, who in this parable does the younger son represent and then applying it to today, how can we as Christians become that younger son? Well, I, you know, being in Luke's gospel, uh, Luke usually addresses, he, he tells more accounts of Jesus dealing with Gentiles, outcasts, uh, lower echelons of society. It was obviously a male-dominated society, so you hear more about women being uh, pleading to Jesus and him giving them mercy, uh, even uh, tax collectors and sinners. So I, I see that as uh, sort of a, a Gentile, uh, uh, the Gentiles really is sort of the younger son, or this, as well as the sinners and tax collectors that were mentioned in verses one through three, who are gathering around Jesus. So how do... Applying this to Christians today, if you were preaching on this text, how do we as Christians become that younger son? Well, I think if we ask ourselves, there is joy in heaven over a lost son coming back to his father. Will there be murmuring on earth? Uh, is my attitude one of uh, how dare God take him back or the church take him back after all he's done or she. Um, I think, I think that uh, understanding that there, but for the grace of God go I. And uh, if my own say wife or mother or relative or friends know of my embarrassing flaws, i.e. sins, against God, um, what do you think God thinks of me? Would I not be in a position of that son who at first said to his father, you know, I want my stuff, even though you're not even dead yet. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, you're dead. Uh, give it to me. I'm going away. You know, is, is not every sin that exactly that? God, in my life, you're dead. Just give me my stuff. And uh, so I think that 
pretty well indicts every one of us. Jeremy, you want to add anything to that? Um, well, I was just trying to wrap my head around your question. How do Christians today become the younger son? And I think it, like we, we normally would associate, like, like my dad was saying, uh, with the, the people outside the church that uh, are living reckless lives. Uh, but, um, uh, but there are certainly plenty of people inside the church living recklessly, too. Uh, I think that it would be any time that we um, think that God is doing a bad job of, of ruling things and, and we want to take matters into our own hands. That's kind of what the younger son was doing, was saying, Dad, this family business, this farm or whatever they were living at is uh, you, you don't know what you're doing. Uh, I want to try life on my own. And, uh, and so it, that, I think, is uh, sort of what uh, the temptation would be for longstanding believers to end up turning out to be like the younger son. Yeah, and uh, I'm going to be preaching on this text this Sunday at the Racine campus, and the way I, I applied it is that, uh, that we can become this younger son in uh, that we abuse the inheritance, the inheritance of forgiveness, love, and grace. And one of the questions I, I talked to the people about is on St. Patrick's Day, I heard President Biden say uh, to a group of people, uh, Father, forgive me, I'm about to sin. And, and the people laughed. Well, that's awful. And we should call him on that. Father, forgive me, I'm about to sin. But I apply that in the sermon is we do exactly the same thing. And we should be calling ourselves out because in our minds, we say, Father, forgive me, I'm about to sin. Father, forgive me, I have sinned. Father, forgive me, I'm planning on sinning again because that last sin was really fun. And then that's misusing the inheritance of forgiveness. So we just keep abusing it. So then let's apply it looking at the older son. We'll start with you again, Wayne. Who does the older son represent? And then how can we as Christians become that older son? Well, the older son uh, is, are really the uh, experts in the, in, the, uh, in the law, in the Torah, and the Pharisees and the leaders of the Jews who imagine that they have always been faithful to God, always doing his will, never have done anything as heinous as asking for their inheritance before their father dies, uh, always been faithful, but God hasn't given them their just desserts. And what's interesting is the words of both of those sons, if you look in verse 12, it says, Father, give me my share of the estate. That was the initial words. Those were the initial words of the younger son. And then the older one, uh, who by rights gets twice as much as any other son in the family, uh, his words are down in verse 29, you never gave me. Put those together. Give me, you never gave me. It's all about what you have done for me, God but it's not what you've done for me and your son in sending your son to die for me on the cross. Uh, it's, it's you, it, it's your lack of responsiveness when it comes to my material needs and my earthly needs and the things that I consider to be important in life. 
Um, the first one obviously says, give me, but then later on realizes his sin, which is really what the, um, the tax collectors and sinners uh, do, many of them. And, but the second one, really, there's the father is saying to him, you know, you eat at my table every single night. We sit together and we, we fellowship and talk. And is it not enough that your life would be filled with me? Uh, you want to you go out and, and party with your friends and have a young goat? Is that really what it's all about? I, I think there's a, there's, there's, there's a subtle perversion in that that we very well understand. And that might be a connection too, because I think we as people... Uh, don't ask how can we be, how are we mm-hmm. as sinners like these people, and uh, and how much we need a father like that father that gives us cause to rejoice not only in our salvation but in the salvation of our of others. All right, Jeremy, what do you think? Uh, how do we as Christians become that older son? How would you preach on this? Uh, I've never read this book. But there is a book out there that I've heard about, and the title alone, I think, is um, uh, it, it, it sticks with me. And I, I always talk about it when I go over this section of verses. Uh, prodigal actually means wasteful. And there is one character in this. Uh, it, yeah, the, the son went out and wasted his inheritance. Yes, the younger son did that. But really, who is the most wasteful character in this whole parable it's the father the the prodigal father um because he he is so reckless with and and there's somebody that we're uh having as a guest on our podcast today that uh taught me the phrase um practice random kindness and senseless acts of beauty um and and that's kind of what the the father is doing uh throughout this whole parable uh the, the, the younger son says, uh, give me my inheritance. And the father says, okay, <laughs> like, no, no. You, don't you want to be a little more cautious or make sure your son is going to be responsible with his money? No, I'll just give it to him. Uh, and then, uh, and then the son comes back and the father doesn't give him any probationary period. He doesn't say, uh, well, you know, we'll, we'll celebrate, but I'm not going to give you anything until you can show that you're, worthy of taking care of it. No, he immediately says, uh, let's, let's put a ring on his finger. That was like the credit card. Uh, that's how you bought stuff with your ring, signet ring. Uh, put a ring on his finger and uh, put sandals on his feet. He might walk away again, but that's all right. Let's get shoes on his feet and, uh, and let's throw a party. And I, I almost think with the older son uh, that it's like, uh, yeah, again, uh, my dad makes a great point that the the two boys are more interested in the father's stuff and the father is interested in his relationship with the boys. And that's what the father wants is for his boys to be interested in the relationship with him. Um, and uh, the, the older son is saying, you never even gave me a young goat to celebrate with my friends. And I've always wondered, well, maybe it would be totally right for the father to respond. Well, did you ever ask me for a young goat? Because I, I probably would have given you one if that's what you wanted. He seems very like a very giving father. Right. And uh, so 
I've preached like you're, you've been talking about, Jeremy, about the reckless love, about the recklessness of the younger son wasting everything, the uh, reckless son who stayed and doesn't appreciate what he has. But it's really, this parable is really about the father, uh, even though we call it the prodigal son. It's really the prodigal, wasteful, reckless son. Um, because I like alliteration, the sermon theme for this Sunday is uh, the cruddy son, the cranky brother, and the crazy father. And this father is crazy. And think about what he does. So in this culture, you know, he's waiting and watching. I always have the image, the farm I grew up on, really long driveway. And then, you know, it's half a mile down on a dead end road. You could see uh, people or usually cars going by. And that's the image I have of the father every day going by the picture window, looking a half mile, mile down the road, looking for the son to come back. And then when he sees him, he runs out to find him. And, you know, Jesus purposely says he ran because a Jewish rich man would never run. That's what you send servants to do. Uh, he has to be hiking up his long robe to do that. Uh, and then he's running out there and then he's embracing his son who smells like pig slop. You know, I think of, you know, every morning I'm trying to go down in the basement or uh, go outside and I bike for uh, 15, 20 miles. I come upstairs and every morning I say to Shelly, Hey, you want a hug? And she wants nothing to do with me. I'm just, I'm stinky. I'm sweaty. And yet the father you know, he is, he's not worried about that. He's willing to get the sun stench all over him. Uh, and, and it's that crazy love of, of the father. So then who is obviously, who is the, the father here representing Wayne? The father is representing God, God, the father, who's, uh, who's amazing grace toward sinners such as I is, uh, makes me uh, pinch myself and wonder is, can this really be? Um, the details in there are just amazing and they really do outline the father's love for all of us. Um, you, you could almost preach on every detail of this thing because it's so full of, uh, uh, it's so wooing in the sense that it woos the, uh, even the teachers of the law and the Pharisees and those who are self-righteous uh, in a way, uh, look at the father's words at the end. My son, he says to the older son, he doesn't scold him. He says, my son, you have always been with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. I mean, uh, what uncommon softness for a father to say to a son those things after his son has acted that way. And that's really uh, the call even to those who are uh, the Jews who think that they're above all this kind of thing. Um, when that first son comes back to him, the youngest son, he, he even has a rehearsed answer for the father, you know, make me like one of your hired men. Uh, but while the father's still a long way off, as you mentioned, uh, he was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. And then the son says to him, father, I have sinned against you, heaven and you. So I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The next words should be what he rehearsed earlier. Make me like one of your hired men. But the father doesn't let him finish his sentence. He says, quick, 
bring the best robe, bring the ring, bring the sandals, and bring the fatted calf and kill it. Uh, he won't even hear of it because, uh, because this, his forgiving love restores him to full sonship in spite of himself. And I don't know if you, if you guys have ever noticed this, but you notice that the father doesn't give any words of absolution to the son because the son, like you just said, Wayne, he lays out his confession, very similar to what we would do on a Sunday morning. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. And then, mm-hmm. you know, the father speaks through his chosen servant of the pastor speaking words of absolution, but there is none. Instead, that absolution is demonstrated right away in the actions. And, uh, and I think even though Jesus doesn't, uh, I think there's sacramental imagery here that we can bring out when we're teaching and preaching on this of uh, putting the robe on, you know, talking about and bringing in the baptismal gown that we have as baptized saints and we, and the son or the father puts that on us and then uh, presenting a meal. And then uh, we would then apply that to the, the sacrament, the feast of victory that the father invites us to. Uh, have you guys ever thought about this when you've preached that? Have you ever mentioned the third son? I don't uh, believe I have. What's that? Are you, are you talking about Jesus? Yeah. Yeah. That, have you, uh, G- the, interpreting the the lost son as uh, as Jesus is the lost son. Well, not no, not Jesus as either of the sons that are mentioned, but he is the third son that's telling the story, the the perfect son, the one that oh sure makes makes up for for all of those. Because I've done that at times too, just to bring in that perfect son to bring it bring it home to be able to bring Jesus in to this because it's it is a story about the father. But everything we know about the Father comes through the Son. Uh, I was just yeah, going to respond to my dad's uh, comment about still calling the uh, crabby older son son, uh, even even when he was being so obnoxious. Um, and it reminded me uh, again. This comes right after the parable of the shrewd manager in chapter sixteen, uh, in the chapter after this in Luke's gospel. Uh, except it's uh, the rich man and Lazarus. And there, what is interesting is that um, Abraham calls the rich man son, even when he's in hell. Uh, it, it, there's no getting out of hell, but uh, it's it's interesting even to see God's mercy uh, that, that he, he even, I guess it's Abraham calling him son instead of the father, but... Um, uh, that word son just kind of stuck out to me. And when I preach on this, I like to think of uh, the times when Jesus went to Matthew Levi's tax booth um, and met him where he worked, where the dastardly deed of, <laughs> of gouging people with tax collections happened um, and, and uh, met him there. And of course, his heart was already changed by that time, and he was able to leave what he was doing and follow him. Or sinners like Zacchaeus, I must go to your house today. Um, or, and then you can go to sinners like Simon the Pharisee, whose house he entered and actually used the occasion to, uh, to mildly rebuke him and show that 
his love doesn't reflect the joy that's in heaven for this woman who's come and washed his feet and uh, cried on his feet and so forth. Um, there is joy in heaven. Will there be murmuring on earth? So uh, Jesus himself shows that kind of uh, that, that love. I, I'm glad you mentioned that because I think a lot of times people, especially in pop culture or society around us, they know enough of the Bible to talk about how Jesus affiliated with uh, the ill-reputed uh, persons of society. But uh, I, I think it's often forgotten that uh, he also had dinner with the Pharisees. He, he, would, he would eat and associate with uh, the people of the upper classes of society too, um, and uh, it, because they needed his salvation as much as anybody. Well, Jesus mentions in here that, you know, you know, the, the angels celebrate in heaven whenever a sinner repents. And so I want to talk to then about how do we, as say a pastor, elders, members celebrate when we have, say, one of these Shoreline students or a longtime lost member come back into the church, because unfortunately, you know, we have, oh, we have Easter coming up. That's not unfortunate. But, you know, if people come back as we send them postcards and texts and our elders call, these people that we have not seen in a very long time, you know, I'm hoping that our members don't say things like, oh, it's been a long time since I've seen you. Well, I hope the church doesn't fall down on top of you. You know, that's not going to be real kind. So how do we again, as pastor, elders, members celebrate when a lost person comes back into God's fold? Well, that's an excellent example, because I think at times that's how they feel when they feel like crossing the threshold, it's going, the church is going to fall on them because they haven't been there, or at least that's how they should feel, let's put it that way. Um, but that, that there's a good time for the elders and the pastor to catch them in a good mood <laughs> uh, to follow up at that point in time and say, you know, it, it was so good to see you there. Uh, I really appreciate that. So that people, so that, so that they don't have the devil whispering in their ear, boy, the pastor thinks, yeah, you're only here once a year. No, no, we rejoice that you came back to hear the word and we want to help you in any way we can to, to make sure you keep hearing it. Um, so we're not, uh, so catch a minute in the act of doing something right. <laughs> so, you know, humanly speaking, where their heart is, of course, is, is in God's hands. And, but we, we want to do something that, uh, that shows that we, we really are rejoicing that they are in the right place and hearing the gospel on Easter Sunday. Jeremy, you have anything to add to that? Well, Michael, I think the way that you this uh, portrayed it is a good, uh, it says all that needs to be said. If, if, you're, if you're making comments that are drawing attention to them when they, there's a very good chance they're already feeling on edge. Um, that's probably not the best time to make those comments then. Um, but uh, it, it uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't really have anything to add beyond that. And in a Bible study that we were just doing right now, I want to start doing this with our greeters because greeters kind of went away with COVID 
and then at our church, when one of our mem- older members who organized the greeters uh, is now a saint in heaven, and that that greeter program has fallen away. But in Bible study, we've been talking about uh, having those greeters again standing outside the doors of our sanctuary, the pastor outside the church to greet people. Because uh, I think you can pick up on that with the father here. He's outside uh, with the son. And it, because whether it's someone who's never come to the church or it's a member that hasn't come for a very long time, it's terrifying to come into our church. Uh, you know, Jeremy knows, well, and Wayne, you know, you've been here on one side of the parking lot. It's a big, heavy metal door on the other parking lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, entrance it's an even heavier wooden door and just to go through that door for that first time in a very long time it it really scares people so i think just even being outside to greet people kind of uh you know welcome them not to have everyone uh overwhelm them but just have a couple of people uh and again maybe not throwing on robes and rings and and all that, and maybe not kill the fattened <laughs> calf right there, but you know, offer them a piece of Kringle. Uh, you know, I think that's all helpful to make them feel welcome. Hey, and since we were talking about the story of the father and the two sons, and we've got you here, Wayne, your father and two sons, which one of your two sons, where would you put them in the story? Oh, that's not fair. Uh, that's totally not fair it's not fair of all my kids and they were both they were both obedient and uh, helpful and uh of course they had their times just like i did well there was there was i think there was one that was probably a little more judgmental of the of your two sons a, a little more pharisaical of your two sons okay is it time for confession jeremy <laughs> go ahead you did you didn't pick up on that no uh, i didn't pick up on that not a lot of <laughs> the, the one of your two sons that was a lot better at tattling than the other one <laughs> no you know it, old age is a good thing it uh it erases memories of those things and makes me love you all the same <laughs> but yeah no i think no i i, I will uh, answer for him he's uh being far too kind um I definitely relate to the older son and maybe it's just because the older son was the older son. Uh, and I know with being an old oldest child that, uh, a lot of times you sort of take on responsibility or leadership or, or feel like you should at least. And, uh, and then, um, it, it bugs you when the younger, more immature kids in the family aren't, uh, towing the line, like, like you think they should. Um, and I, well, talk to mom. Cause I think she would probably, <laughs> she would probably, she would, probably, she would probably remember that. Uh, yeah. She had to well, remind you know, me once in, or in twice. Way, she, that's, one, that's sort of once or twice. She had to remind son. me once or twice. She had to remind me. Uh, yes. They're disrespecting you, but it, you remember you're not the parent. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I do. I do remember hearing that phrase. You're not the parent. <laughs> But I didn't remember who it was said to. No, I think it's it's stereotypical of the oldest son, maybe a little bit more hackneyed, but that or oldest daughter for that matter, to be the person who's kind of like the uh, parent in, in absentia when it comes to uh, the parents not being around, and uh, maybe uh, 
maybe that's maybe they're the ones who come out and see things black and white and want to make sure that everyone stays in line. So part of that is probably a birth order, but part of it, no doubt, has everything that we do, no doubt, has sin attached to it. So we always and, and find I think, ourselves at the foot of the cross. Yes. And and the, the neat thing then that makes that meaningful for me is that uh, Jesus leaves the parable open-ended and it, Obviously, the father is trying to win that older son over, but he never really says, oh, then the older son had a change of heart and came into the party. Um, and on the one hand, there's some law in that that, that says, uh, well, woe to you if, you if you don't answer this loving father's call. But there's also, I think, the open door for gospel to say, um, hey, uh, you older, well-behaved hypocrites, um, you can, there's still a, a loving father with his arms open that uh, you can embrace uh, and, and thank that he is as forgiving of you as he is of his uh, lost son. Yeah, what a disappointment it would be if we, told, if we were told how this older son turned out, um, because it wouldn't leave that question mark there that Jesus intended for the uh, teachers of the law and the Pharisees, which is, how about you? Can you find joy in your heart? Like there's joy in heaven over this brother of yours. And um, good question. Where, where do I land with that? Yeah. Well, Wayne, I know that wasn't a fair question, but I thought it'd be a fun question to ask you. That's, That's why I, asked I, you. I understood it was, I take it in the, in the spirit in which it was given Yeah. with levity. Yes. That's right. Uh, but since we're talking about family relationships, I'm going to brag on my, I'm the oldest brother too, oldest of three, and I've got two younger sisters. I'll brag on both of them. They're both, if I'm a driven person, my two younger sisters are even more driven than I am. And uh, my, my sister Dawn, uh, she's very driven. I don't know if you guys know this, but she's a division one basketball coach. Uh, she coaches at South Dakota uh, university that for the coyotes and they they beat uh what would be like a seventh ranked team and a second ranked team and so now they're in the sweet 16 playing saturday afternoon against university of michigan so oh, okay. and and what's interesting yeah well i didn't i didn't do anything for it uh i didn't even i didn't even challenge my sister when she played basketball against me because she was so much better than i was being two years younger seated? what's that how are they seated seated i think they were ranked 10th 10th okay and michigan yeah. is uh i think michigan is a three and what's okay. interesting is that don had coached at michigan as an associate had coached for a number of years now playing against michigan but uh just throwing that out there as a kind of interesting story timely story of family as we're talking about family. Uh, but then also kind of wrapping this up as Jesus in, ends the parable with the father saying about the son, uh, you know, you should rejoice with this brother of yours because he was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And the hymn of the day for this Sunday is amazing grace. And the author of that hymn 
you know, uses that picture language. I once was lost and now was found. I was blind, but now I see I was dead and now I'm alive again. Uh, so, you mm-hmm. know, that it, I think that, that ties in so well with, with the two other two scripture readings too. We're not going to have time to get into, but Romans 8 and then the Isaiah 12 section, just in Isaiah 12, that first verse talking about that, God's anger being set sent away. Uh, he says, I will give thanks to you, Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you comfort me. Surely as God is my salvation, I will trust in him and not be afraid. Uh, I was using that text with my shut-ins this week and just uh, reminding them that God has every reason to be angry with you, just like he has reason to be angry with these two sons. But that anger was turned away. That anger was turned away by the third son, Jesus, that all of his anger should be poured out on us for the way that we've sinned and acted like one of these two cruddy or cranky sons. But instead, that anger has been turned on the third son, the perfect son, Jesus. Uh, And so now we're not afraid. And now we're comforted. And now we have salvation because... uh, the, the father didn't give any restrictions to that younger son when he came back, nor did he pull off the belt for that cranky older son. Those were the things that he did to that third son. And just uh, just bringing it all in as you listen to the three scripture readings, you listen to the hymns, like Wayne, you started out with today talking about God's amazing grace. So anything else mm-hmm. you guys want to bring up with anything with any of these texts? I don't think so. Wayne? Uh, Dad, go ahead. Well, I'm good. I, I think that we pretty well covered that, uh, the, at least the gospel text for the, yeah. for the day. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, then we'll wrap it up here. So this is Pastor Zarling with Pastors Wayne Lightning and Jeremy Lightning, or as Bonnie Raitt might sing, two lightnings in the nighttime. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life. <laughs>